is time to put away the bias, the lies, and deceit and bring forth real talk from real people about real news. Providing the out loud truth and capturing the essence of a new generation all in a fast-paced hour. This is Viewpoint, the Midweek Report. Life is a series of never-ending stories. As I see it, my job is to tell those stories in a way that will give some clarity to this complicated and perplexing world. Welcome to Viewpoint, the Midweek Report. I'm Alana Friedman, and over the next hour, I'll give you my take and an in-depth look into some of this week's most important news stories. I don't get it. Honestly, I really don't get it. Oh, I understand that the Democrats lost the election in 2016 and they were deeply disappointed. But their disappointment turned into rage and their rage turned into hysteria and their hysteria turned into something that can only be described as pathological. They have never given up their fight to somehow reclaim the White House, and they're doing everything they can to unseat the duly elected president, Donald J. Trump. It's crazy. The Democrats seem to have completely lost all touch with reality, and now they're chasing a dream that has long since expired. They desperately wanted Hillary to win. Yeah, I got that. But she didn't. And that was almost a year and a half ago. They seem to be stuck in some sort of time warp. And they can't move forward. I think about this every time I hear about another effort to harass or undermine or block or in the extreme to unseat President Trump. And I'm wondering what is in the water? What have they been drinking? What is, what is going on that they cannot let go and get back to work and get their job done? It's supposed to be in our DNA that no matter what happens in our electoral process, when it's over, we move on. But the Democrats haven't done that. They're leaving all of the important work that they're supposed to be doing and focusing all their energies, to the exclusion of almost everything else, on whatever it takes to stop Donald Trump from whatever it is he wants to do. If he says white, they say black. If he says up, they say down. There is no compromise on the part of the Democrats or any effort to meet the president halfway. So even on issues that they once were for, like building a wall on the southern border, which they supported when Barack Obama was president and he wanted one. But now that President Trump wants it, they're against it. And they are fighting tooth and nail against funding it and allowing it to happen. And that troubles me a lot because, you know, in this country, our history teaches us that no matter how vehemently our founding fathers and our legislators who followed them, however vehemently they disagreed, even when it came to blows, in the end they were able to come together to sit down peaceably and work out their differences so that the country 
could continue to grow and thrive. This country went from being a, a small startup at the end of the, the 18th century into the greatest power in the world in less than a couple hundred years. What we have now is, on the one hand, a president who is working harder than I think any other president has ever worked because he is rumored to get about four hours sleep a night and the rest of the time he's working or playing golf. But I suspect that even when he's playing golf, he's working. In any case, this president has accomplished more in a year and a half than almost any other man sitting in the White House has ever done. So let's go over some of the things that he has done and then maybe we can try to figure out why it is the Democrats are so intent on not giving him any credit or letting him move forward with any of his future projects. The Washington Examiner has actually codified 289 accomplishments that they attribute to President Trump and his administration. I'm not going to give you those, but I will give you a few of them. The latest job reports showed 196,000 new jobs for the month of March 2019. Now that represented 1.5% more than last year at this time. And unemployment, which was at 10% in October 2009, was 3.8% in March 2019, 10 years later. And that was the lowest level of unemployment since 1969, 50 years. That's huge. And here's something interesting. After about a year of negotiations, Trump was able to sign into law the Republican-passed Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It was the largest overhaul of the United States tax code since Ronald Reagan. This tax bill, among other things, provided benefits for major corporations who are also major employers. So these tax benefits for major corporations gave them an incentive to raise the wages of their workers. Amazon, for example, used this benefit to raise their workers' salaries to a minimum of $15 an hour, and that applied to all their workers, full-time, part-time, and seasonal workers alike. And they have 250,000 workers in the United States. And Amazon was one of many companies who were able to do this because these tax breaks enabled the companies to pass on their savings to their employees who saw more money in every single paycheck. Okay, and then, uh, of course, we know that uh, Trump negotiated a, an historic United States-Mexico-Canada trade agreement to replace NAFTA, and I guess we're waiting for Congress to do something about it, like pass it. And in addition, we know that he has been working tirelessly to create new fair trade deals with Japan, South Korea, Europe, and China. So he's been very busy on the international trade front. The deal with China is uh, somewhat problematical, and it's been, it's been in discussion for a number of months. But the last time that I heard the president talk about it, 
he said that he thought 95% of it had been agreed upon and they're now working out some of the thorny details of the last 5%. So he has, let's see what else he's done. He has kept his promise to end Obamacare. This went through several different phases. The most recent phase ended when a federal judge in Texas ruled that the law in its entirety was unconstitutional. It is expected that uh, that judgment will be appealed and taken to the Supreme Court, which is in fact what the president wants because he believes that the Supreme Court will rule in his favor against Obamacare. And here's another thing. Trump brought industry back to America. I can remember Obama saying that uh, manufacturing was dead in this country, that there was no way we could compete with the third world countries, and uh, therefore we needed to just give up and understand that this was the new normal. Trump did not agree, and he said it as part of his mission as president to bring manufacturing back to the United States. Now, the manufacturing jobs in America under the Trump administration grew at the fastest rate in 23 years and companies that were overseas are coming back. Now there are some issues because there is a steel tariff war going on and it is affecting many industries, not just the steel industry. This is a problem we're having with China that hopefully will be worked out very soon. But within the manufacturing sector, the Wall Street Journal said that wages rose 3.1%, which was the biggest jump since 2009, and that low-skilled workers are among the biggest beneficiaries. So we can see that in that area, Trump has accomplished a great deal. And here's another thing that the Democrats seem to have forgotten in this long list of accomplishments by Donald Trump. He also secured the release of 19 people who were being held captive in often very bad conditions by a number of countries. Of the 19 people that he got released, 16 were Americans. They were held in, in North Korea, Egypt, and China, as well as Portugal and Venezuela. So more Americans were freed in two years than Barack Obama was able to get released in eight. But unlike Obama, Trump did it without releasing terrorist leaders or sending plane loads of cash to terrorist regimes. This was a good thing. And here's yet another thing. Trump was responsible for getting a new right to try law passed, which gives dying Americans access to experimental medications that might save their lives, but haven't yet been approved by the FDA. And then he did something really remarkable with the CIA. He appointed Gina Haspel as the agency's first female director and also made Elizabeth Kimber the first woman to lead the uh, CIA's clandestine service. So that, that's a big deal. He did something in the energy sector. By pushing to expand our domestic energy production, he made the United States energy independent. Instead of being an energy consumer, he made the United States an energy producer and exporter. 
And as a result, America is no longer being held hostage by Saudi Arabia and other energy-producing nations. One big thing that Trump did was to pull out of the disastrous and dangerous Iran deal that Obama and John Kerry pushed through with so much energy. Not only that, but he has put new sanctions on Tehran, which have taken millions of barrels of Iranian oil off the market. If you remember during the Green Revolution in Iran, which was so brutally put down by the Iranian government, Obama said nothing. But when the Iranian people rose up again last year, Trump did not turn his back on them. He supported them. We are not at a point yet where the Iranian government will be toppled, but I believe it will in time. And in the meantime, uh, the people of Iran know that America is behind them. And then finally, I'll mention this one. The president recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and moved our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. This is important because for many, many years and many presidents, there have been promises during every election cycle that this year the candidate, if he wins the election and becomes president, will move the Israeli embassy to Jerusalem. Since Jerusalem has been the capital of Israel since 1948. But no one has kept that promise until now. The fact that Donald Trump not only promised, but kept his promise, showed the entire world that America keeps its promises and that it stands behind and beside its ally Israel. But Trump did even more to show to the world America's strong commitment to Israel. He also accepted Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. And he promises a peace plan, which he calls the deal of the century. We'll see. But in the meantime, we look forward to that after the Israeli elections on April 9th. He now says that he will probably release that peace plan sometime in mid-May. And that brings us back to the issue of how the Democrats are trying to undermine the initiatives that Trump has been so boldly presenting. When freshman Congresswoman Ilhan Omar began spouting off anti-Israel and anti-Semitic comments in the halls of Congress, and even went so far as to call an expert witness who had been invited to testify, who was Jewish, a liar, and when he objected to her line of questioning and finally answered with a no, I will not answer your question, she replied, okay, I'll take that as a yes. Some of her fellow congressmen were appalled at her language and her behavior and her arrogance and her anti-Semitism. But when they tried to pass a bill that would censure anti-Semitism in Congress, the Democrats watered down the bill so much that it no longer had any efficacy at all. So anti-Semitism in Congress got a pass, and so did Ilan Omar. And just for the record, that is not okay. Anti-Semitism in Congress or anywhere else, but particularly in the halls of Congress, is a disgrace and must not be tolerated or accepted. 
Ilhan Omar needs to be censured and called out by name because what she did is un-American and it is absolutely unacceptable. If Ilhan Omar thinks that her place in Congress is sacrosanct because she is a Muslim, she is wrong. She was elected to Congress as an American. And if she does not understand that the same rules that apply to Islamophobia also apply to anti-Semitism, then she has no place in Congress and she needs to be gone. The real shame is on the Democrats who refused to censure her, refused to criticize her, and gave her a clean pass on behavior that was so offensive, disrespectful, and un-American. The Democrats need to get their house in order and start behaving like Americans instead of like spoiled brats who didn't get their way. Okay, that is the end of the first segment and we have to take a break now. But don't go away because I'll be right back and we'll talk some more about what's going on in the world today. The America Out Loud talk radio app is on Android or Apple. It's the perfect way to listen in to the new generation of talk shows and hosts who are ready to inform and inspire. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Viewpoint, the midweek report. I'm Alana Friedman, and in this segment, I'd like to continue our conversation about the Democrats and how their hysteria over the presidency of Donald Trump has really forced them over the edge. Their latest trick, well, it's not actually their latest because they've been after this for a long time, but they have renewed their demands for Donald Trump's tax returns. Now, they started this a long time ago. They demanded of Donald Trump that he release his tax returns from so many years. And uh, he said no. And the truth is, the law does not require him to do so. But his reason for saying no, he said, was that his financial affairs are under audit. And until the audit is completed, he cannot release his tax returns and make them public to anyone. Now, during the campaign, there might have been a reason for requesting his returns. Maybe they wanted to know about something in his uh, financial history that was pertinent to the possibility of his becoming president. But he is president now. And his tax returns are, frankly, irrelevant. But the Democrats are like a dog with a bone, and they just can't let go. So originally, they asked for his tax returns, and he said no. But this time is different. They haven't turned to Donald Trump for his tax returns. They've turned to the IRS, 
and demanded that the IRS release his tax returns, which is illegal. The IRS is a nonpartisan government agency, and they are not allowed by law to release the tax returns of any American citizen, period. So once again, the Democrats are asking a government official, or in this case, a government agency, to break the law in order to bring Donald Trump down. They're turning over every rock and and looking into every corner and behind every shrub to find something, anything, that would enable them to impeach the president. This is all a radical departure from American jurisprudence and what we know as America's political tradition. This demand came with a deadline, April 10th, and requires that the IRS turn over the president's personal and business tax records, not only for this past year, but for many years. To be perfectly frank, it is ominous because it is taking some of the most respected concepts that are protected by our Constitution, such as the right to protection from unusual search and seizure, and the concept of innocent until proven guilty. And here's the thing. When they made the demand, it came with a threat that if they did not receive the tax returns they were demanding by April 10th, they were prepared to issue subpoenas for those documents. And using their congressional power to ignore, or worse, destroy them. When we file our tax returns, there is an expectation of a certain amount of privacy that goes along with that. It's like medical records or uh, social security numbers or encrypted passwords. When these secrets are not only exposed to the public, but used for political purposes, it becomes even more egregious, and frankly, ominous. It brings us closer and closer to the terrifying world of George Orwell's 1984. And the fact that this comes from not an individual or a political enemy, but from Congress, which at the moment is full of political enemies, makes it a lot worse. The congressional demand for Donald Trump's tax returns carries an implicit threat against all Americans whose personal and private information as protected by the U.S. government is all subject to being made public by Congress for political ends. And that is not acceptable. So let's be clear. This is not legitimate political activity. This is dirty. This is the stuff that comes from third world dictators. This is the way that dictators run. Putin, Castro, Maduro. What bothers me most is the fact that they feel, or they say at least, that this is a legitimate activity on the part of a congressional committee. It's not. It never has been. This is character assassination in a politically motivated overreach. And it really has to stop. 
So let's move on and talk about another another situation that's going on among these would-be dictators. Here's a slightly different angle on um, Democrat dystopia. When Justice Brett Kavanaugh was testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee that was to approve him for the Supreme Court, he was accused by a formerly unknown woman, a woman who, by the way, he said he didn't know and had never known, of a sexual assault that she said he committed on her when he was in high school. Now, we heard from the left that the victim always has to be believed, always. And they supported his accuser and several other accusers who appeared miraculously during his hearing. He consistently denied the allegations, and moreover, that none of the victims could provide any evidence that what they were accusing him of ever happened. He, on the other hand, provided a diary, a log of his activities even that far back. And those logs proved that he couldn't have been where she said he was, when she said he was, at all. In the end, he was appointed to be the next justice on the Supreme Court to replace the late Antonin Scalia. And that was great. But never mind, for the sake of the discussion, let's say that in the case of sexual assault, the victim always needs to be believed. Always. But wait. What if the accused is a Democrat? What then? Do those rules still apply? What about the case in February 2019 that involved the three highest elected officials in Virginia? They were all Democrats, and they were each accused of serious crimes, including sexual assault. Had these men been Republicans, just the accusations alone would have led to their impeachment or forced them to resign. Ah, but they weren't Republicans. They were Democrats. And so the outcome was different. For example, Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax was accused of a violent rape, and yet there was no hue and cry that the victim had to be believed. There was no demand for justice for these men to resign. And guess what? Remarkably, today, all three men are still in office, are still refusing to resign, and there is no accountability. None. These men, it is now April, are still in office. They have not resigned. They have not been impeached. They are still fighting the good fight on a daily basis from their executive offices in the State House. That's Virginia. And those are Democrats. And for them, the rules don't apply. That is the double standard. For Democrats, it's one set of rules. 
and for Republicans, it is quite another. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit and go to another kind of double standard. Crazy Joe Biden, creepy Joe Biden. Joe Biden, whom the Democrats say, oh, that's just old Joe. Don't worry about him, he's harmless. But he can't keep his hands to himself. And he wants to be president of the United States. The first time I saw Joe Biden with his hands on some woman, she was standing with her husband next to the president of the United States, and he was giving them some kind of a, an award or a letter or something. And there he was, Joe Biden, standing behind this woman with his hands on her shoulder, nuzzling the back of her head. I couldn't believe it. And I said to my friend, what in the world is he doing? Her husband is right there. That is so creepy. And I later learned this was crazy Joe Biden doing his thing. Oh, well, my gosh, what is this world coming to? Disgusting. I think if someone did that to me, I'd give him an elbow where it would do the most good. I can't believe that nobody complained when the former vice president nuzzled them from behind. Well, anyway. So now that Crazy Joe has been called out for his nuttiness, his creepiness, what would you suppose would happen next? He's been thinking out loud about running for the presidency. Is he going to do it? Nobody's telling him not to. Oh, that's just Crazy Joe doing his thing. So this is the Democrats doing their thing. Nobody is saying that he has to get out of the presidential race, not on the Democrat side. They're saying, oh, that's just Joe. That's Crazy Joe, you know. Oh, we just have to humor him. He wants to be president of the United States. Are you kidding me? If Donald Trump were to do something like that, he'd be brought on charges. They would have the world coming down on his head for being a womanizer, for being a some sort of a pervert. But Crazy Joe gets away with everything. We have a double standard here that is glaringly apparent, and nobody seems inclined to acknowledge it, no less do anything about it on the Democrat side. They just say, oh, that's Crazy Joe, or, oh, well, boys will be boys in Virginia. And the double standard that we see every day is more apparent and more powerful now than it has ever been before. Because the Democrats have the power in Congress now, and they're doubling down on their double standard. They have given up on whatever ideals they once had, and everything now is political and everything now is to retain power or to gain it where they don't have it yet, and it doesn't bode well for America. Now, we all know that in November 2018, the Democrats took control of the House of Representatives, and the little progress that Donald Trump was able to make with a Republican Congress, he totally lost when the Democrats regained power. So, we have a double standard here that is glaring and highly offensive, and nothing is being done about it. 
because the Democrats in Congress, they are the ones who are applying the double standard on a day-by-day basis. The same thing could be said on the part of the candidates. Now, you know, when, I've mentioned this before, when when, uh, the Republicans had 17 candidates lined up for the presidential election before the primary, it was a big joke among the Democrats. Ha <laughs> look at all those crazy candidates. But guess what? This year, the Republicans have only one candidate so far, and the Democrats already have 16. So the shoe is on the other foot, and now it's not funny, it's serious. Even though some of these candidates are less than serious from my point of view. Democrats are willing to give billions of dollars in foreign aid to countries that burn our flag and shout death to America. But they won't give a penny, not if they can help it, to build the Southern Wall to keep some of these death to America radicals who want nothing more than to destroy what we already have and what we have worked so hard for that they don't have and they don't want individuals coming into our country and threatening our citizens and killing our citizens But the Democrats won't give any money to protect America from that. Do the Democrats who are making these policies of open borders and open cities and sanctuary places for illegal immigrants to hide and escape the long arm of justice, do they really care about the opioid crisis or about the human trafficking or the so many other things that are being done to hurt our people in America, do they really care? And Camilla Harris has just said that we need more illegal immigrants in this country. More. So the Democrats won't give any money to build that wall. What do they care about? It's hard to tell, judging from the messages that they are sending out now. For example, they say that they care about the children who are separated from their parents. This is a very sad story, and they blame it all on President Trump because it became front-page news on his watch. But it didn't become law on his watch. It became law on Obama's watch. And the Democrats are not the least bit interested in giving Obama credit for that. They'd rather blame it on Donald Trump. So finally, we go back to where we started. The Democrats refuse to face the fact that there is no turning back, that Trump is the president, will be the president, and may very well, if they continue with their antics, win by a landslide in 2020. It's not hard to see that it's time for the Republicans to take a firm stand and fight back against this Democrat dystopia. Under Donald Trump, this country has made huge strides in the last year and a half in its economy, in its foreign policy, in its trade policies. Everywhere that Donald Trump is pushing us forward, the country is responding. Now it's time for Republicans to follow his lead. Well, that's the end of the second segment, and we're coming up to another hard break. But don't go away, because in the third segment, we're going to cover 
several very interesting stories. We are the vision of the voices. You can email us at talk at americaoutloud.com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. I'd like you to meet Dr. Faye Wilson, change agent, ordained minister, and host of Intentional right here on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. Dr. Faye. America Out Loud is all about the vision of the voices. How can one's voice make the ultimate difference? The messages of this program and others that are on the Out Loud platform are so powerful that are reaching the world with positive messages. Even as a news platform, it is doing news in a different way so that people are actually standing up and paying attention to what's being said. And again, walking away from the table, having these discussions. I have people, let me tell you this quickly, I have people in my prayer group that are now listening to the Out Loud platform and they're texting me and calling me going, wow. We are excited you're here. AmericaOutloud.com. Our commitment is clear to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Viewpoint, the midweek report. I'm Alana Friedman, and I want to talk to you a little bit now about some of the hot spots in the world outside our own borders. Let's begin with Iran. Two days ago, on April 7th, President Trump designated Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, also known as the IRGC, as a terrorist organization. This move was a long time in coming. The IRGC has been around since 1979. It was established right after the Iranian Revolution, which brought the Ayatollah Khomeini into power. Khomeini was afraid uh, that the military would pull off a coup against his regime. And so he created the IRGC to defend him and the mullahs who surrounded him from the threat of a military coup. Today, the IRGC has more than 100,000 fighting soldiers. And the Iranian mullahs use the IRGC as their first line of defense against all possible attackers. The IRGC is a very brutal and hardcore military organization. They've been compared to the Nazis 
SS in Germany during the Second World War. And they had the same reasons to be created because like uh, Khomeini, uh, Hitler was afraid, particularly in the early days of the Nazi regime, he was afraid of a coup from the uh, regular German army. And so he created the SS and Khomeini created the IRGC to protect them from these internal threats. Iran's mullahs are obsessed with death. And so it should come as no surprise that the Iranian regime sees suicide terrorism as one of their military methods that is essential to their overall mission. The IRGC also has an army, navy, and air force, and they're responsible for Iran's ballistic missiles and their irregular their irregular warfare operations, which are carried out through the elite Quds Force and some of its proxies like Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria. So the president's pronouncement that that described the IRGC as a terrorist organization is an accurate one, and it's long overdue because Iran employs terrorism against its own citizens. Those who are seen to be a danger to the state are imprisoned, and the prisons are dreadful places where they are tortured and abused and deprived until they are either released or until they die. A fair trial is not one of the characteristics that the Iranian government is known for. The trials are anything but fair, and the sentences may have nothing to do with the nature of the crime, but more to do with the politics behind it. The regime feels particularly threatened by what we might call the intelligentsia. The bloggers, the writers, the poets, the journalists. They started kidnapping the human rights activists more than 20 years ago. These were everyday people who expressed themselves at first in the open and then in secret. And when they were caught, they were tortured and sometimes murdered. So the president has now identified the IRGC for what it is. Iran's response has been straightforward. This was the first time that the United States had declared a nation's military or a part of the nation's military forces as a terrorist organization. We've been calling Iran a terrorist supporting nation for a very long time, but this is the first time that a part of their uh, military operations, the elite core of military personnel, have been designated as a terrorist organization. And it's about time. So now, in response to the president's designation of the IRGC as a terrorist organization, Iran has declared that all of the United States military is a terrorist organization and that the United States is a terror-supporting nation. So we are now have the two parties in the ring facing off, and uh, we'll see where this leads. But it seems pretty clear that America has all of the cards on its side because America is much more powerful than Iran. America's military force and diplomatic force is much more widely distributed around the globe than Iran's. And I think if it comes to a face-off, America will have a decided advantage.
Another thing is that Donald Trump has already put sanctions on Iran, and those sanctions are hurting the terrorism business around the world. One of the things that's happening is that Iran can no longer supply the unlimited funds to other terrorist organizations like Hezbollah and Hamas. And these organizations are now finding themselves in deep financial trouble as a result. So that's where we are with Iran today. The fallout will be very interesting to watch over the next weeks and months. So let's talk about something else. Now you all know that on Tuesday, April 9th, Israelis went to the polls. But as I am recording this now, we do not know the outcome. What we do know is that so far, Israelis have not been enthusiastically going to the polls. It's been a fairly low turnout. And so this low turnout may actually significantly influence the outcome. Now you, my friends, are at an advantage because you know the outcome and I don't yet know it. Because by the time you hear this, all of the news will have been released and we will be discussing what it means. One of the things that came up in this election cycle is that the current prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu, made promises that may seem very extreme, but actually are a logical progression from where Israel has been and where it's going. Netanyahu said that if he continues as prime minister of Israel, one of the first things that he will do after the election is to declare that the towns and what the press and the West like to call the settlements will be brought under Israeli sovereignty and will become officially Israeli territory, a part of Israel. No more occupied territory. Now that's a big deal. And the Palestinians have already threatened a major violent response should Bibi carry out his plans. Now before I go further, I need to explain to you how the Israeli elections work. It's complicated. Israel is not a democracy like the United States. They don't have two parties. They have many parties. And they, you don't vote for a person in Israel. You vote for a party. You vote for a list. And in the um, privacy of their party meetings, each individual party votes for the people that they want on the list. And the people who uh, get on the list are put there in order of the number of votes they got. Now, Bibi Netanyahu has been at the head of his list for some time, and that is why he is prime minister. The question now is, will he continue to be prime minister? Will his party receive the most votes? And when you have a multi-party system, you never have a majority. So his party will never have the majority of the votes, but what they will have, or what they hope to have, is a plurality. And with that plurality, then after the election, they begin making partnerships with other parties in order to create a majority. And that's how an Israeli prime minister is chosen. So let's go back to the original question. If Netanyahu continues to be prime minister, he has promised that Israel 
will bring all of the Israeli settlements and towns that are in the West Bank under the sovereignty of Israel. That's a huge step. And I want to talk a little bit about what that means because it is part of the overall issue of peace between Palestinians and Israel. And it relates to President Trump's peace proposal, which he says will be coming out in the middle of May, I believe. So what we need to see is the fallout from the elections and then to hear the president's peace plan. But getting back to Netanyahu, the Palestinians have had multiple opportunities to make peace with Israel. Over the years, there have been several very large peace conferences that were followed by agreements such as the Oslo Accord. There has been that famous handshake between Itzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat on the White House lawn with Bill Clinton. And there has been peace initiatives by a succession of Israeli prime ministers, including Ehud Barak and Ehud Olmert. And in these cases, Arafat was offered almost everything that he had asked for, 95%. And he never even bothered to give a response. Instead, after one of these initiatives, he started the Second Intifada. The Second Intifada actually began in September 2000. But the seeds of the Second Intifada were sown way back in July. At the same time that Arafat was sitting in peace talks, he was planning his massive attack on Israel from within. This was the Second Intifada. It was so cynical because Arafat knew when he came to the peace talks, when he sat down at the table, that he would never agree to anything. And he didn't. So my point is that the Palestinians have had multiple opportunities to make peace with Israel. But what the world does not seem to understand or want to understand is that written deep into the subtext of every Palestinian initiative, whether it's from Fatah in the West Bank or from Hamas in Gaza, is the underlying hatred of Palestinians for Jews and for Israel and the dedication of the Palestinians for the principle that their only job is not to make peace, but is to destroy Israel and drive the Jews into the sea. For Hamas, it's written right in their charter. And Fatah has made it very, very clear that this is their mission as well. Heck, they, they even name squares and schools after terrorists who have murdered many Israelis. They're not secret about it. They don't, they don't hide their hatred and they don't hide their mission, which is to kill Jews and destroy Israel. So they keep sending terrorists their own kids, young kids, to go out and do combat with Israeli soldiers and kill Israeli civilians. And they have killed many. So that's the reason that so many efforts at finding a peaceful solution have failed. Because the Palestinians would accept nothing short of the total destruction of Israel 
as a solution. So I think if we're going to deal with a peace initiative, on the one hand, which, is, which Trump is hoping to offer, then we have to understand that it's doomed to failure unless it is something so incredibly unique that we haven't thought of it before. But here's a thought. President Trump has shown an amazing talent for doing things that everybody else says are impossible. So there's no point in ruling out something unique that may actually lead to a peaceful solution. But it's very hard to overcome the reality that the Palestinians don't want peace. They want land, all of it. And they want Israel gone. And in the meantime, they have threatened Israel with a new uprising. Will it happen? We'll see. It may happen, it may not. But there certainly is precedent for it. And what the Israeli response will be remains to be seen. So there are a lot of questions at play here. And there are many possibilities in terms of the outcome. Right now, today, while I sit and wait for the results of the elections, which you already know, the future is a great big question mark with many possibilities. One thing to keep in mind, though, Israel is strong. Israel is considered to be the eighth most powerful military in the world. Those numbers just came out. So Israel is not going to be easily defeated by anybody. But it still faces Iran, Syria, Lebanon, and a bunch of other hostile Arab countries that do not abut it but are very close. Israel has a strained and encumbered peace with Jordan, a more solid peace with Egypt, and some of the Arab countries are starting to make overtures to Israel. And that's a good thing, because it means that not all the Arab countries are dedicated to destroy Israel, but there are still many Muslim countries around the world that are at eternal war with Israel, like Iran, along with Hamas in Gaza and Fatah in the West Bank that poses an existential threat to this tiny little country. So now, more than 50 years after the West Bank was captured in a defensive six-day war, Israel is saying, enough is enough. Now we will do something else. If peace is not an option, if a peaceful two-state solution cannot be found, then we will annex the territory and make it part of Israel and move on. So that, my friends, is where we are this afternoon. You are, as you listen to this, a little further down the road. You know a little bit more than I do. And we'll see what happens. A lot depends on what kind of coalition one of the leaders is going to have success in putting together so that he can form a new government. And what happens in that government, what the leaders decide to do moving forward into the future, well, that's going to be very interesting indeed. Stay tuned, because this story is far from over. Well, this hour is just about over. I've enjoyed sharing these stories with you, and of course, next week, there'll be more. The news never stops coming. So if you have some comments and you would like to share them with us, 
We'd love to hear them. We'd like to know what you think. It, do you agree? Do you disagree? What do you think about some of the things we talk about? Please send your comments in to America Out Loud or tweet them or post them on Facebook. We'd love to see them. And in the meantime, have a good week. I'm Alana Friedman, and you've been listening to Viewpoint, the Midweek Report.